everybody, it's C.W. Hall. Thanks for joining us here on the Top Docs Radio Show in partnership with the Medical Association of Georgia. Uh, we were just talking about the fact that we've been doing this program now for uh, coming up on full four years. I'm really pleased to have Mag as a partner to help make this show possible. And today, I've got Dr. Kevin McGill with us here in the studio. We're going to be talking about uh, metabolic and uh, bariatric surgery uh, and the implications of that for folks. To give you a little background about Dr. McGill, he's the director of metabolic surgery at Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta. His practice focuses on minimally invasive bariatric surgery, including robotic and foregut surgery. He received his medical degree from Georgetown University School of Medicine while he completed his general surgery training at Loyola University Medical Center and followed with a fellowship in minimally invasive and bariatric surgery at Columbia University's St. Luke's St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center. He's board certified in surgery, fellow of both American College of Surgeons and American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. So clearly, it's a mouthful. A subject matter expert. And here we are in Atlanta, um, deep south, the land of the meat and three, and maybe a cigarette or two. Obesity is an issue here for us. Talk about the the extent of the problem and how it's affecting people here in the state of Georgia. So, you know, today we'll speak about obesity as a disease and patients affected by obesity, but I think, just as you pointed out, this is a tremendous problem. Um, The numbers, and I always have to look down because they're staggering. It's estimated in the U.S. that 93 million adults are affected by obesity. We expect that number to grow to 120 million in the next five years. Here in Georgia, if you look at statistics, it's 31.6% of our you know, our fellow patients are affected by obesity, and we're really kind of scratching the surface of the problem. You know, when we look at um, the national numbers on how many patients we actually operate on annually, offer surgical solutions for obesity, it's only about two to 300,000 patients a year. So it's, um, the scope of the problem is almost kind of hard to, to palate. I know, like many of our chronic illnesses, there's certainly behavior as a component to the the cause of obesity. Can you talk about, you know, what leads so many people to to be obese? I know there's more than just just patient behavior. Sure. Yeah. So so for my colleagues out there that practice obesity medicine, forgive me. As a surgeon, I'm going to try to speak to the disease as well. Um, but it is a behavioral disease that's founded with a genetic predisposition, and you know you put patients with a genetic predisposition who have certain behaviors in our Western environment, and it's a recipe for failure. Um, one of the, the famous obesity researchers is a Dr. George Bray, and he, he had this statement in the 90s that I really liked that, you know, um, our genetics loads the gun and our Western environment pulls the trigger. And yeah. I've, I've always appreciated that, and I think people that have heard this statement because just like once the bullet's out of the gun, you can't put it back in the barrel. When a patient struggles with obesity and they've gained 50 to 100 extra pounds, however they got to that point, their metabolism is forever changed. Their fat cell mass has forever changed. Um, a lot of the neuro and hormonal signals that their gut produces have changed forever. So once you've gotten to that point, you can't just diet and exercise your way out of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that... Um, that we understand the disease of obesity um, beyond just blaming behaviors. So yes, behaviors are, are a tremendous role, but um, but this is a disease as well that has um, has has more to do than just changing behaviors. I did not realize, after all this time hanging out in healthcare, I didn't realize that 
that that regulation gets offset like that and, and is not able to be brought back. You know, thinking about it from the perspective of if I'm a type 2 diabetic, an adult onset diabetic, and I start eating better and exercising, I can bring my A1C back. But you're telling me that if I get to that point that it's there's some physical changes that have occurred that I can't re- reverse even though I may be able to improve on my situation. Well, don't don't misunderstand. That certainly helps. And diet and exercise uh, is a big part of this too. Um, but just diet and exercising alone won't sustain weight loss for this very specific group of patients. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, talk about some of the things that can come downstream from that. We, you know, I mentioned diabetes, obviously being one of those that can um, have a greater risk for the patient. You know, if if they are obese, talk about some of the different problems that the obese state can can kind of either facilitate or, or exacerbate. Yeah, so where do I start? It seems like every disease in the body is affected by weight. Um, The Cleveland Clinic put out a great picture, which we all use, called the Metabolic Woman, um, which shows kind of a a woman affected by obesity and lists all the diseases that go along with weight. We commonly talk about the top five being diabetes, as you mentioned, high blood pressure, abnormal lipids and cholesterol, you know, heart disease and respiratory illness such as sleep apnea. Um, But it really affects every aspect of health. Um, Young women who struggle with reproductive health, they often have issues with polycystic ovarian syndrome that's affected by weight. Um, Many cancers, you know, when we look at how patients respond to treatment who are obese versus non-obese, obese obese patients fare worse. Um, So really every disease is affected in some way by weight. Um, our longevity, you know, the quality of our life as we age, um, mobility. You look at our orthopedic colleagues who are dealing with joint disease. Um, they oftentimes can't do a lot until their patients lose a tremendous amount of weight. So I know I focus on this, and this is how I spend all my professional time, um, but I think this is the background of just about everything we're dealing with. When you look at the healthcare community today, and obviously you, you mentioned the fact that as a surgeon, this particular aspect of patient care and this particular group of humans is is your focus. What are you seeing as you interface with the, the sources of your referrals, like the primary care doctors and others who are treating these patients in terms of, I would imagine that it's somewhat common to feel like there's not much I can do. I, I can't make the patient do the things I need him to do. Talk about right. what how that is today. At least that's the way it was when I was practicing in, in healthcare as, a, as an RN long, long ago. But it, how, what's the environment like today? Yeah, I mean, so trying not to be cynical and negative, the, the positive is <clears throat> obesity is viewed as a disease today. Mm. And that's that's fairly recent that the American Medical Association has accepted obesity as, as a disease, uh, really only within the last five years. Um, the positive that comes from that is when you start classifying as a disease, you can start researching it and treating it as, as a disease. Um, I think what you're kind of alluding to and implying is also very true. Um, there's still a lot of negative weight bias in our society. Um, you know, there's been interesting studies, studies where healthcare practitioners, physicians, and nurses have, have self-identified these negative weight biases. And, you know, just as you can imagine, um, obese patients who are afflicted with obesity have traditionally been viewed as weak-willed, right. lazy, 
Um, intelligence is often implicated in obesity, uh, which sadly is ludicrous. But if you carry that negative bias, you're not going to treat a patient as they deserve to be treated. We certainly don't view our diabetic patients or our patients who struggle with high blood pressure as lazy or weak-willed. Um, so these negative biases that certainly exist, you know, we work to overcome them through education, and hopefully that'll make us better, better care providers. Um, those practicing primary care medicine have it extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, their time is limited. They're often not reimbursed uh, to focus on these kind of problems. So those are those are some of the barriers that they're fighting today. Probably have to try to <clears throat> include some of that kind of patient encounter and engagement through things like wellness visits and different things like that. Just because, like you say, that kind of discussion to really be effective, you're going to have to take some time and spend spend speaking with the patient and helping them come up with plans. And and like you're saying, when you're trying to run, you know, a very busy primary care office you just that time is very hard to chisel out it's valuable right we'll talk about when they get to you you're mm -hmm. you're a surgeon we were talking about the fact that you do bariatric surgery can you share what is bariatric surgery absolutely and, and uh, talk about some of the surgical options so metabolic surgery bariatric surgery weight loss surgery all synonyms for the same thing these are tools that assist patients to lose weight and sustain weight loss um, I'm very careful not to teach patients or my colleagues that this is a panacea. You know, many patients come in and think if I could just get this operation, this problem will go away, and that's, that's clearly not how it works. If a patient's prepared and ready to make a change, because the cornerstone of all of this is behavioral change, then these surgeries can really help them. The way these operations work in some way, shape, or form we make the stomach smaller to restrict how much food a patient can consume at any given time. And then through some of these rearrangements of the gastrointestinal tract, there are very powerful metabolic and hormonal changes that occur. Um, you know, as healthcare providers, physicians, nurses, we know that the gastrointestinal tract is more than just an organ of digestion and absorption. It's a very powerful endocrine organ that makes hundreds if not thousands of hormones that have to do with how hungry we are, how full we feel, you know, how our body responds to the insulin we make, whether we store or consume calories. And all of those things do change after metabolic surgery. Over the last 50 years, there have been a variety of weight loss surgery options. Uh, the four that our society still supports are the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, which is the gold standard. That's the one we know the most about. Um, that's one where essentially we make the stomach smaller and we bypass a significant portion of the intestinal tract. The real power of that operation is that right away there are those hormonal changes that we were occurring that affect satiety. They affect insulin sensitivity. So many patients who have, for instance, type 2 diabetes, who've had diabetes for less than 10 years, they're not on insulin, those patients will see improvement in their diabetes within weeks after surgery. Um, that's clearly not a weight loss mediated phenomenon, that's a hormonal phenomenon related to the intestinal change. Hmm. The other operations that are out there, there's a more aggressive uh, gastric bypass called a biliopancreatic diversion. It's a very good weight loss surgery, it's a very good diabetes surgery. It's got a little bit higher complication profile in the first 30 days, and certainly long-term it can have more nutrient and vitamin deficiencies. Um, some of the other operations we've heard about, the adjustable gastric band, very popular 10 years ago. 
<clears throat> we've seen that one slowly kind of go away. And it's not that it was a bad operation. It just wasn't quite as good for sustained weight loss as we thought. Mm. And long-term, although safer in the first 30 days, it had a much higher reoperative rate long-term than many of the other surgeries. Um, the last surgery that's quickly become the most popular in the U.S. is one called the vertical sleeve gastrectomy, or the sleeve. Uh, the sleeve is essentially a stomach reduction surgery. We take away about two-thirds of the stomach. Very good for weight loss, very good for appetite and satiety. Um, however, it can be really challenging for folks who struggle with heartburn and reflux. So if you're a patient that already has bad heartburn, a sleeve is, is not a great option for you. Hmm. So in the, in the sleeve <clears throat> option, is, there, is that something that's going around? Or is you're creating a sleeve with shape exactly. by reducing the, I guess, the bag, if you will, of right. what the stomach is? Right. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked because a lot of patients have that perception that we're yeah. putting something over. Is it or, a constrictive thing? It's, you're, it's you're really reducing it physically. Physically, we're removing about two-thirds of the stomach. It's really referring to the shape of the stomach. So, mm -hmm. so you're right. We're not putting anything over or around the stomach. Um, the other surgical options today, um, there's some newer endoscopic options. Um, you'll hear more about these gastric balloons right. that are placed through the mouth endoscopically, non-surgically. Um, I think those are going to be you know, interesting tools. Um, they're not really meant to be long-term solutions for weight loss uh, because they have to be removed about six months after they're placed. But if you think about a patient who struggles with severe obesity, um, this could be a really helpful tool to get them to the operating room more safely. You think about our patients who still struggle with weight, although maybe they're not at a BMI that supports an operation, this could be a good tool for them. And there are other endoscopic solutions that are being looked at. You know, patients come in and ask me all the time about the endoscopic gastric plication. It's not commonly performed. There's not a lot of great data yet. Um, but it could be a temporary solution to assist patients. And that, that procedure is going through the mouth and reducing the size of the stomach by endoscopically plicating or suturing the stomach. And these are novel therapies that are being investigated. When you look at the patient group <clears throat> that should be considered, can you share with peers that may be out there managing these types of patients when discussing this kind of at least a possibility might make sense? Yeah, so you know the, the strict medical indications right now are a BMI, a body mass index bigger than 40 or bigger than 35 with medical comorbidities. Um, that's who's a candidate. But I think, you know, those of us who take care of patients every day, you offer it, but you have to just make sure that they're ready for this. Um, this is a dramatic lifestyle change. Their relationship with food will forever change. And, you know, like we said before, the cornerstone of all of this isn't surgery or medicine. It's, it's being prepared to make a change. And so I think if a physician's looking at their patient who is affected by obesity, um, offer it but make sure they're ready for the change. Um, that's really what it takes to move forward and to succeed after these operations. When it comes to, it sounds like based on what we're discussing, I'm <laughs> anticipating that there's some support from third-party payers, my insurance company or in Medicare. Will it cover my, my procedure or do I need to kind of plan for that? Yeah, I think one of the questions we were gonna talk about are what are some of the barriers to care today? And, and really, it remains that. You know, it's, it's access to care. It's whether or not the third-party payers will 
pay for this, whether an employer will offer this or exclude it from from their insurance policies. And sadly, you know, many employers and insurance companies exclude treatment for obesity. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the biggest parts of most bariatric surgical practices is we really spend a lot of time with third-party payers checking to see if a patient has access to care, whether they have benefits, what will the insurer pay for surgery, um, not only to make sure we're paid to provide the care, but to give the patient information. Um, it's really challenging if you have a policy and it says, yes, I have coverage for bariatric surgery, but you dig a little deeper and yeah, we support it, but you're gonna pay 90% and it's after you jump through a year of hoops to get there. I see. So there are, there are quite a number of barriers to care. And if you're the primary care physician that wants to help your patient and you've sent them to the surgeon, you assume that it's done. <laughs> right. And and really, yes. you know, sadly, a lot of phone calls we get are essentially the patient, why aren't you helping them? Right. And it's because sometimes we can, you know. Um, the Obesity Action Coalition, you know, that's a reference I put on there I think people should check out. Um, they have some great resources for patients. You know, what do I do if I don't have coverage? How do I get access to care? You know, how do I approach my employer to see if potentially this is something they would consider? And, you know, there are options there, but sadly it puts the onus back on the patient. And that's really challenging because all of those negative stigmas that these patients are already going through, now we're telling them to go hat in hand and and beg for help to their employer or their third-party payer. So it's it's a challenge. You talked about how, and I can see how many people, patient and even the physician uh, on the other side, could see this as a panacea. I get the surgery done. I'm going to, my life's going to change. I'm going to lose all this weight because I've gotten this done. Talk about that and other misconceptions that may come with concept bariatrics. Yeah, so so that's that's a big one. Um, you know, as a, I'm a, you know, I'm a community-based surgeon. This is what I do all day. I'm not an academic surgeon, so I, you know, I really enjoy this practice. I enjoy meeting patients and helping them through this. Um, but if a patient walks in the door and we get the impression that they're just trying to get to the start and finish line, and if I just get surgery, it's done, they're not ready. And, and we spend a lot of time helping them understand, you know, this is just the start. We're just giving you this tool. You know, you really need to engage. This is a chronic, progressive, relapsing disease. So once you're treated for obesity, once you lose weight, you're not done. This is a lifelong thing. So, you know, a lot of it is just educating patients and getting them there. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions about surgery. You know, um, many patients come in and, you know, many providers and physicians say the same thing. Well, if we get surgery, you're just going to regain weight. You know, mm-hmm. you know uh, Dr. Miguel, Kevin, I've taken care of patients for 20, 30 years. All of my bariatric surgery patients regain their weight. Um, we remember the, the ones that struggle. We don't remember the successes. Uh, when we turn to the literature, you know, half of patients who go through weight loss surgery through metabolic surgery will regain some weight, maybe 5% of their weight over time. Um, 12% of patients will fail. And we arbitrarily define success and failure as not maintaining at least half of your extra weight lost over time. So if you're 100 pounds overweight, 
we arbitrarily define success as keeping off at least 50 of those pounds long term, 88% of patients do. You know, 88% of patients do maintain long term uh, weight loss. So, so that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Um, there are so many others. You know, uh, I, I hear and read all the time that all bariatric surgery patients become alcoholics. Um, <laughs> You know, suicide rates are higher in bariatric surgery patients, and there's some truth and some not in all of those kinds of statements. Um, We do have some patients who struggle with addiction postoperatively. When you really look at those patients, um, they probably had addiction issues prior to surgery, so those kind of generalizations don't really help. Mm so those are some of the big ones that we, we talk about in here. Um, the cosmesis of it, you know, this is not cosmetic surgery. We're right. not doing this um, for, for cosmesis, but yet that's important to our patients. So many patients come in uh, with the notion that they're going to have to go through skin reduction surgery, plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, and some of them do, but not all patients do. I see. Do you have kind of a rough estimate? I'm sure it's obviously quite individual, but when you go through this surgery and someone's doing a pretty good job of following what the recommendations are for their particular part of it, I mean, what do you typically see as as a weight loss realistic you know trend how 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 fast does it happen yeah. and you know to what extent do you yeah. usually see so it's a little different with each of the operations but in general we tend to see about 20 to 30 pounds of weight loss in the first month wow. and then it's not linear it's mm-hmm. not like they lose 2 to 4 pounds a week but if we look at check-ins along the way by 9 months we tend to see about half of the extra weight lost and the remaining, if they're, if they're doing a gastric bypass on average, they'll lose about 70% of their extra weight in the first 18 months. With a vertical sleeve, it's about 60%. And we tend to see that remaining weight loss over the next six months. So, you know, patients are so focused on the scale, and we spend a lot of time teaching them that that's just a number. Mm-hmm. We're not defining success after these surgeries by weight loss alone. Improvement of their medical comorbidities, exercise tolerance, sleep patterns, so much improves after these operations that if they just focus on that number, you know, you're going to feel like a failure. But the number is what we can measure, so that's what we're looking at. So when they come in the office, the first thing we're doing is putting them on a scale just to kind of check in and see where they're at. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to trying to decide where I go to get the surgery done. I'm sure you've got some advice on questions I should ask, things I should think about to try and determine where should I go. Is uh, getting more than one doctor's opinion surgically a good idea? Talk about some of those types of things. So I think getting opinions is always a great idea, but fortunately we've made it a little easier. The American College of Surgeons, in coordination with the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, has published a list of programs that are really dedicated to quality care. Um, I strongly urge patients who are considering surgery to make sure the practice they're going to participates in one of those programs. Um, The one that we probably tout the most is the MBSQIP, which is run by the American College of Surgeons. And it's a quality initiative, essentially, where those programs are showing that they have the ability to care for these patients, the surgeons, and the multidisciplinary team is, is trained to take care of patients afflicted with obesity. 
and you know the complications that can arise from these surgeries. How about the, on the other side of it for <clears throat> your for your peer physicians out there that would be managing these patients? Do you have some advice for them? Thoughts for them around how yeah. to best manage this? patient group as it relates to this is a resource here in the community that they can integrate into kind of their thought processes around what they recommend for a patient to yeah, think about. Yeah, so, and you know, there's so much to talk about. We really haven't focused on an important part of this, which is the medical access to care. And within the last few years, there's now a board certified bariatric physician. Um, the Obesity Medical Association has a fellowship for internists and family physicians to really focus on the disease of obesity. Uh, we're, we're fortunate in our community that we have a number of these now floating around and the number of those diplomats is increasing exponentially. Um, these physicians are really focusing on the disease of obesity and all of the possible uh, treatment options, not just surgery. So, you know, the new paradigm we think will be, first of all, identifying the disease. You know, if I'm a physician and I'm taking care of a patient with all of these problems, how do I offer them a solution for obesity? Well, we do our best, but we can also refer them to these obesity medicine specialists who have more time to really focus just on that disease. If a patient's a good candidate for a surgical solution, they can, the obesity medicine specialist can send them to the surgeon. And then we will work together long term to ensure that they maintain successful weight loss. Obviously, just like some of the other chronic diseases, it sounds like this is very much, to do it best, is a very much a team approach with facets from the primary care doctor, facets from the patient, facets from other specialists like yourself, whether it's surgical or just from specialized medical management of that human. I mean, I. I can't say that better than you just did. Um, there's no one treatment for obesity. Uh, like you said, if we just offer a surgical solution, we're not really kind of completing the task. So I, I think multidisciplinary care is essential. Behavioral health is a big component of this. Access to psychiatry and psychological care is paramount. Um, access to obesity medicine specialists is also extremely important. So, so just like you'll hear a lot when you talk to trauma surgeons, trauma is a team sport. Uh, transplants a team sport. Obesity medicine and surgery is definitely a team sport. You mentioned the Obesity Action Coalition and their website is obesityaction.org. Yeah, other resources that you would recommend either patient or physician check out? I, I think that's a great one. I think the asmbs.org, the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, has a very robust website with a lot of patient information. Um, uh, the Obesity Medicine Association also has a very good website, which has some great resources for physicians and providers. There's some online education modules you can take at home, um, so great sites. Have final thoughts for the patients before we let you get back to the office? Um, thanks for having me. Thoughts for patients, you know, just don't give up. Um, when it's right to put yourself first, there are definitely options out there. And um, I, that's usually my parting words to a patient is just, you know, you need to learn to put yourself first. That's what we don't do. We put our kids first, our jobs first, and often our own care last. And uh, uh, when you struggle with this disease, you really have to kind of change your priorities. I want to say thanks so much for making time out of your busy Thank day you. to join us. I'm always pleased to have our clinicians join us in the studio. I know you guys are 
trying to run a, a busy schedule. So sharing this information is, is great. Obviously, many of those around us in the community are either dealing with obesity themselves or someone means something to them uh, is dealing with it and the challenges that come inherent to it. So to all the folks that took some time to check us out today, I want to say thank you very much. And I hope you'll turn around and click share on this, put it around uh, your other uh, social media sites that you uh, frequent, get this information out. It might just help somebody that means something to you uh, change their situation for the better. So um, we'll say thanks in advance to all the folks that do that for us. And I want to say uh, I appreciate the partnership with Medical Association of Georgia for bringing this show to you. We look forward to catching up with you next time. We'll see you then. Great.